word, you can turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1 is our text for this morning, verses 1 through 4. I used this a few weeks ago as a reference text as a part of this series, but it is our main text for this morning. Now, for too long, there has been allowed this presumption in the church that God is silent. Now, let me explain what I mean by that, because you'll often hear people ask, why, when I read my Bible, do I see God speaking in the Old Testament and, and only sparingly in the New Testament, confirming of, of Christ, and then, and, but then I don't hear God now, or, or why can't I hear God's voice? So there's this presumption that God is silent. Now, this may start when many of us are young. Like how many of you, if you grew up in a Christian home, you went alone to be in your room, you got on your knees, and you, you started to pray. You said, God, I know you're real. Let me hear your voice. Tell, tell me to do this or that, or, or give me an answer for this. And then maybe you felt like a breeze, and you thought God was speaking to you, and you realized the air conditioning had kicked on or something like that, right? So, of course, maybe you came away confused or hurt that you heard nothing. There's this presumption that God is silent, which is, of course, not true. I think that one of the great failures of the church in our day has been and continues to be the complacency when it comes to assumed knowledge of our Bibles as God's Word. Because as we've seen over these last several weeks, we know that God is not silent because God has spoken and continues to speak through His Word. If you want to hear God's voice audibly, just read it out loud. Right? So, I want us to answer a few questions this morning. Like, why, why do we desire to hear from God? What is that in us, that, that innate desire that, that we want to hear from God? What gives us the right to assume that we should hear from God or that we can command Him to speak at our will? And lastly, one question I want to carry over from last week's look at John 6 is, what word will we follow? What word will we follow? Because we're all following a word. The word of culture, the word of self, the word of government, the word of an ideal. We're all following a word. And the answer for the Christian is simple. That we must follow God's word and God's word alone. So as we conclude... Our Sola Scriptura series, my aim is to once again point us to God's Word. And there we'll see how Christ was and is the ultimate answer to all the questions concerning the Word, truth, and authority. So with that, I'll ask you to stand once again in honor of the reading of God's Word as we read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, 
through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the word of God. Let's pray. God, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would speak to us as we know you do through your word. I pray that you would convict us for our complacency when it comes to your word and that you would move us in obedience to your word as the sole authority over all things in our life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, church. So we began this journey of this Sola Scriptura series, this being the the last installment of this series. We began this journey in 2 Peter. And in 2 Peter, we set our course to see what the Bible proclaims about itself. Like what does is, what is God's Word tell us about God's Word? And let that be our standard for how we look at God's Word, interpret God's Word, live according to it, right? And so we set as our foundation in that, that first sermon in 2 Peter that the Bible is the Word of God spoken from God that the people of God may know the will of God and walk in obedience to it. So that has been kind of our our foundational statement, that the Bible is the word of God spoken from God, that the people of God may know the will of God and walk in obedience to it. And so, of course, there we see that God has made himself known. And we've entered from there to our second sermon, where we went to Deuteronomy chapter 30, where we saw that God's word speaks with clarity, that when God speaks, he speaks with clarity clarity, and he has done so in our Bibles, and that if if there's an issue with understanding, the issue lies not with Scripture, the issue lies with sinful man, and that God's Word, we also saw there in Deuteronomy 30, that God's Word is that sure standard by which we are called to live. Pressing forward, we venture to 2 Samuel chapter 7, where in the Davidic covenant, we saw that God's word is redemptive in nature. That not only does it speak with clarity, but it speaks with clarity and purpose. And that purpose is redemptive in nature. And that God's word alone incites proper praise of his name. We cannot know how to praise God without God telling us what is proper praise of his name. Then in Jeremiah 1, at the call of Jeremiah, the next sermon, we clearly saw that we saw the truth that God ordains his word. So he does not give his word flippantly or without knowledge or purpose or ordaining it because he is with it to perform it, as we saw in Jeremiah 1, where he said to Jeremiah, I am with my word to And in that, we saw that God's word is consistent. That God speaks not only with clarity, not only does he speak with 
purpose, a redemptive purpose, but he speaks consistently. He speaks consistently with what he has spoken before. Finally, last week in John's gospel, as we moved back once again to the New Testament, we started in 2 Peter and then we went to the uh, we went to the law, historical books, prophets, and, and then we last week found ourselves in John's gospel. And in John's gospel, we saw that God is with his word because God is one with his word. That in the person of Christ, we come to know that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Showing us that God's word is not some abstract thing or a collection of allegories or ideals, but rather a divine person. As the crowds that Jesus was speaking to there in John 6 dispersed in offense to what Jesus had to say, we saw Peter's response to Jesus' question, do you want to go away as well? To which Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life showing us that the word illuminates the path of life. So when it comes to seeing the truth that God's word alone is our sole authority in our lives, one of the most influential reformers in defending and solidifying this truth was John Calvin. He's a second generation reformer. And he stated in his dispute with the church, he stated this, in various ways, God put into the mind of the patriarchs what they should then hand down to their posterity. A firm certainty of doctrine was engraved in their hearts so that they were convinced and understood that what they had learned proceeded from God. For Calvin, only God himself is fit to give witness to himself. Therefore, the credibility of Scripture has no dependence on our ability to reason, but on the Holy Spirit. He proclaimed, the highest proof of Scripture derives in general from the fact that God in person speaks in it. So, as we saw last week, we began to kind of uncover and look at how did we get our Bible. When it comes to our Bible, in order to defend in order to defend it as the sole authority in our lives and in order to defend it as its whole, as God's word, we must be prepared to answer why this Bible is authoritative. Right? Because there's many other people who proclaim that they have a word from God. We've talked about that in other sermons. There's, there's other beliefs that have Bibles that are similar to ours but are compiled differently. So, so we must be ready to give a defense for why we know this Bible is the Word of God. And it must be a defense that is better than, well, I'm Protestant, so th th this is the one that I have, right? So you have yours, I have mine, and we just, we're, we're good, right? No. So the Catholic Bible has more books, which are called the Apocrypha. Well, why, don't, why don't we include those? If someone were to ask you that, would you be prepared? Right? This brings about the discussion of canon. Right? So I'm not talking about that thing that's fired from a pirate ship. Okay? Canon, it's a collection of books. Right? So this is the canon. 
This, the Bible that we have is our canon. So why do some beliefs canonize some books while others do not? If we're going to defend the Bible as our sole authority and as God's word and the absolute truth of the universe, we need to know and be able to say why. So the 24-book Hebrew canon called the Tanakh includes all 39 books of our Old Testament. Now, you don't have to be a math major to know that I just said something that doesn't quite add up, right? There's a 24-book Hebrew canon, 39-book Old Testament canon that we have. They're the same, right? Why are they the same? Because uh, the difference is that the Hebrew canon combines some of the books that we divide up, right? So therefore, that's where you get lesser books, but the same thing, all right? So that's the math, the Bible math equation for you, all right? So... The major difference between the Hebrew canon and our entire canon is what, though? The New Testament. For a Jew, to call it the Old Testament is offensive. Why? Because to them, it's the only testament. The major difference here, of course, is Jesus as the Christ. That's what we're going to see here in what the author of Hebrews is outlining for us this morning. But back to the Apocrypha. Why don't the Tanakh and the Protestant Bible include the Apocrypha? So the Apocrypha, these other books, they came in what was called the intertestamental period. Right? That's the period between the Testaments. So you have the end of Malachi to Matthew, and there was stuff written in there. So, so why don't we include that? But the Catholic Bible does. After the death of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, and after the Holy Spirit departed from Israel, the belief was that there was no inspiration of Scripture past that. Thus, for the Jews. So, thus, the Old Testament is quoted or referenced roughly 295 times in the New Testament. So, roughly 295 times in the New Testament, the Old Testament is referenced. But not one time... Does Jesus or any of the apostles or our authors refer to the apocryphal books? When they refer to Scripture, they refer to the Old Testament. So when Jesus and the New Testament authors looked at what was for them, their Bible, they looked at the same 39 or 24 books, whichever math equation you want to go with, that we have in our Old Testament. So that's where we get the authority there. So in Luke 24, 27, when Jesus leads the Emmaus disciples through all the scriptures and shows them all the things concerning himself, he was pointing them to the same scriptures that we have. So what changed? Where did we get the authority of the New Testament? Well, verse 1 here of Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. When Elijah in 1 Kings 18 is battling the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, how do the prophets of Baal go about attempting to get their God to act? Do you remember that story? Right? It's one of the more famous Bible stories. So Elijah and the prophets of Baal battling each other out. Do you remember how the prophets of Baal go about attempting to get their God to act. 
So they flail and they moan and they wail and they groan and they eventually they cut themselves and Elijah kind of mocks them and they do everything short of killing themselves to try to coax their God into speaking, acting and making himself known. We had to and have to do none of that. There was no conjuring, no convulsions, no coaxing. God spoke to our fathers. He alone ordains his word and when it comes and where it goes. Long ago, in many times, many ways, God spoke. He speaks, church. He is not silent. Our God wants to be known. So we don't have to do all of these convulsions and this wailing. For he has made himself known by his will, for his glory, that we might know him and give him glory. He wants to make himself known. As if to say, I'm here, I'm right here. God does that. We don't have to ask him to do that. He makes himself known. No action necessary on our part. And yet so often it falls on the deaf ears of sinful man. So we must praise God's grace that God is not hidden. That's the first point on your outline this morning. God is not hidden because God has made himself known. And he makes himself known through his word. His word spoken long ago and many times in many ways. And have you ever just marveled at this truth, church? That God has revealed himself through the exact means by which we needed in order for us to understand. Calvin likened it to a father using baby speak to their child. That God has spoken the exact way that we can understand it. God spoke. He made himself known. He has given us revelation of himself for the very purpose that we know him, love him, and give him proper worship and praise do his name. He didn't say, stay silent, nor did he hide. He spoke. And the author of Hebrews was so stricken by this fact that he spends the majority of the rest of his book expounding upon what that means by God speaking. How did God speak? Who were the prophets? Who were those that he spoke through and to? That's the rest of the book of Hebrews is telling us how God went about doing that. So why... Doesn't everyone marvel at this fact? Why isn't everyone in the world astounded in the unique way in which God has preserved his enduring word? Why doesn't everyone else see it? I'll turn your attention. You can turn with me if you want, or, or you can just make a note of it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul expounds upon this very thing. If God spoke, like we see, he made himself known. He wants to be known. Why doesn't everyone see that and, and just come together in agreement on what that looks like? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, 
we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. This is Paul speaking to the church at Corinth, right? Verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So why, why can't everybody just come together like God has made himself known? Well, because the God of this world has blinded the minds of the disobedient. They can't see it. Why? Because they're too distracted by listening to the word of self, by listening to the word of culture, by listening to this group that says that they have the word of God, by listening to that group. God has made himself known, but not everybody can see it. Just as Jesus told us last week in John 6. So don't be deceived, church. If you feel like God isn't speaking, the problem is not God's volume. It's your hearing. If you're searching but can't see, you're probably searching in the wrong place. God's word is well lit, as Paul so beautifully portrayed for us there in verse 6. And because it is the light shining in the darkness, illuminating our path and calling us home, his voice is clear. He is not hidden. And so if you believe in God's word, hope in God's word, and trust in God's word, then you need to praise God for his grace to open your eyes and ears to himself. God speaks that we might love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we might walk in heartfelt obedience to his word. So God spoke in a way that we could understand. How, how did he do that? Well, this is the next point on your outline this morning, God speaks to humans through humans, to our fathers by the prophets. He spoke to the people through certain people. So he only spoke audibly to certain individuals who he gave his word to then communicate to the rest of his people so that they might know him, so that they might have his word. And they might walk in obedience to it. God speaks to humans through humans until he doesn't. And I'll explain what, that, what I mean by that in a little bit as we get to verse 2. Now, when God speaks, he doesn't just speak out into the ether with no expectation or result. He speaks to his people with purpose, intentionality, and clarity and consistency. As we've seen through these previous five weeks. He doesn't just speak with no expectation or result. He speaks with intentionality, purpose, clarity, and consistency. So, you might notice that the author of Hebrews is using the past tense here. Long ago, in past days, right? That's kind of talking about before. At many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Well, 
And how does he speak now? Verse 2. But in these last days. So now. Right? So, so now in what we have come to realize. Right? So, so back then he spoke like that. Now, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So verse 2 begins with a short word, which has big implications. Verse 1, God spoke. Verse 2, but. It's an incredibly important but right there. All right? So you're telling me there's more. God spoke like this, now there's more. How could we need more? God spoke. Past tense. And he spoke. He speaks with purpose, clarity, consistency. So why do we need more? How, why, why did he stop doing that? Well, what did God speak about when he spoke before? In providing revelation of himself, God also pointed to the divide between man and God. You see, like we pointed out before, God speaks with purpose, and that purpose is redemptive in nature. So God pointed to the divide between man and God and how he was at work to close that divide because man couldn't close it on their own. So where does the authority of the New Testament come from? What happened in that time? What changed from the old to the new? Jesus is what happened. Jesus is what changed. And His authority is what gives the New Testament its authority. The very one who all the Old Testament pointed to. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Thus, we see Christ is the true fulfillment of God's spoken word. It's the next point on your outline. This morning, Christ is the true fulfillment of God's spoken word. So what did God speak about? God spoke of what was to come. Rather, who was to come. Therefore, in order for God's word to remain sure, true, and consistent, the covenant promise, consistent with the covenant promises and redeeming purposes, needed fulfillment. In other words, church, What the author of Hebrews wants us to realize here is that it's all about Christ. So don't don't miss this. If you struggle to read your Bible, if you struggle to understand why the Old Testament is relevant, why is the New Testament relevant, if you struggle to grasp what is going on throughout all of Scripture, listen to this. Read your Bible with Jesus at the center of it, and you'll see why It is God's word. Don't read your Bible with you in mind. Because when you put yourself into the center of it, things become convoluted, unclear, somewhat meaningless. If we're reading verses, what can inspire me today? What can make me feel better about myself? How can I read God's word and and, and see what I need to do here or there or what, what, what it says about me? When you put yourself in the middle of it, things can get unclear real quick and sometimes meaningless. Why? Because we're not at the center of it. He is. 
We make awful main characters. We're fickle and we're petty and we're always changing. He has been since before the beginning. Unchanging, always true, always faithful. The word who was and who became flesh and dwelt among us. Long ago, and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And the author of Hebrews didn't stop there by just saying he spoke to us by his son, right? By his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So he acknowledges the authority, the power of Christ. So let's continue reading because he continues to expound on that as we look at verses 3 through 4. Verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God. The he there, obviously being Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So not only did God speak to and through the prophets, but he sent his son. So if you think God is silent, I hope your mind is changing here. So he spoke clearly, consistently, made himself known, said, hey, you're not doing it right. And then he stepped down in the person of Christ. Said, okay, this is what I've been telling you all along. He sent his son, the exact imprint of his nature, to be both the fulfillment of and to speak the word. This is why Jesus is not just another prophet. Long ago, many times in many ways, the Lord spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Well, the author of Hebrews tells us here in verse 2 through 4, or the end of verse 2 through 4, that Jesus isn't just joining that line of prophets, but he is the true and better prophet. He is the word itself. So he's not just another prophet to fit along in a long line of prophets. Rather, he is the true and final prophet because he is the word itself. God is present with his word. In Christ, we learn that God is present with his word because he is one with his word. From creation onward, we see revelation that God's word affects change and it is not spoken into a void. And so the, the author of Hebrews consistently throughout the rest of the, the book points us to the supremacy of Christ above all these other prophets. Like here's how God spoke and here's how Christ is superior to that. So the supremacy of Christ confirms the consistency of God's word. All that we need to know of God has been given to us by God in the revelation of his word. All that we need to know. So the other question is not only how did we get this, but then why do we not add to this? Right? God spoke in many ways. He spoke to us by His Son. There's not a third 
step. Long ago and now. Long ago he spoke this way, now he speaks this way. So our books, we don't add anything because there are no, no, no one else can speak with apostolic authority. So if you listen to or follow someone who says that they are an apostle or carries that title, stop it. They're not right. They're not true. So if you follow someone who says they have new revelation or they have a word from God, they're a false teacher because they're saying that they themselves speak scripture. The supremacy of Christ confirms the consistency of the word. In his word, we see the striking contrast of consistency with a world that is consistently inconsistent. In God's word, we see a striking contrast of consistency, whereas in the world, we see consistent inconsistency. The consistency of God's word reflects his unchanging nature. So this is why it's just as true then as it is now. We also see here the supremacy of Christ guarantees the sufficiency of the word. It's the next point, next sub-point there. Why? How? How does the supremacy of Christ guarantee the sufficiency of the word? We saw this last week. Because he is the word. Christ is supreme, therefore the word is sufficient. What he says is necessary, good and right and sufficient. It's enough. We need no more prophets. We listen for no other word. Why? Because Christ is supreme. And the arrogance and the hubris that we would ever think that we are finished with this word. That we would think that we have somehow graduated from this and are ready for a different word, a new word, a better word, a word that satisfies, a word that comforts rather than a word that convicts and redeems with consistency and clarity. Joshua, we saw this when we looked over Deuteronomy 3. Joshua comes to the end of his life and cries out in worship saying, not one of your good promises has failed. Yet those who claim the title of evangelical, we started this series by looking at that survey, looking at a few examples from that survey, of those who claim the title of evangelical, yet so clearly have beliefs that go exactly against these very things that we've talked about these last six weeks. And yet we're lumped in with them. Kind of makes you think. Those who acclaim the title of evangelical would have us believe that there is an expiration date somewhere printed on our Bibles. You won't find one. Don't start looking. So shame on us if we fall for that trap. Shame on us if we lose the only all-sufficient authoritative word of God as our only foundation. Because the next thing that we see, the supremacy of Christ asserts the finality of the word. The supremacy of Christ asserts the finality of the word. Paul also echoes this in Romans chapter 8. Talking to the church at Rome, he says this. If you just want to make a note, Romans 8, 37 through 39. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The supremacy of Christ asserts the finality of the word. What our lives ultimately come down to is how will we respond to God's word? How will we respond to God's revelation of truth, knowledge, and wisdom? How do we respond to God's revelation of our sinfulness? How do we respond to God's revelation of His redeeming work? How do we respond in repentance? That's how we're supposed to respond. Do we respond in repentance and heartfelt obedience? Or do we respond with denial and outright disobedience? Seeking another word, a different word. A more up-to-date word. It's important to note the measured and clear approach of what the author of Hebrews takes here. Again, I kind of mentioned this a while ago. Stage one, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets in many ways. Stage two, God has spoken in Christ. And so Christ speaks to his apostles, and that's where the authority of Scripture stops, is with Christ. That, so if you were not with Christ, did not learn from him as a direct apostle with authority from Christ, then no go. Right? So God spoke, stage one, to our forefathers by the prophets. Stage two, God has spoken through Christ. Noticeably absent, again, is stage three. Why? Where is it? Is it somewhere else? It's, it must be lost there with the 23rd chapter of Revelation somewhere, right? If you didn't get that, there's only 22 chapters of Revelation, okay? So, but this is the question that comes down to how God has revealed himself. God spoke and God speaks through his word. So, our lives come down to how do we respond to God's revealing himself. If you've responded to the Father's drawing and believing in his word, praise God. If you haven't, I urge you, repent and believe because his word and his word alone is final. And we will all learn that one way or the other. To conclude, I want us to read, you see there, he the author of Hebrews goes on to expound continuously about the supremacy of Christ. So we stopped in verse 4 there of chapter 1. He, he talks about he's superior to the angels. That's the, the crux of, of, of ch the rest of chapter 1 there. That he's, he's better than these heavenly beings. He's much greater than they. And he goes on through the rest of the book, as I said, to outline how he's better than all this line of prophets. He's superior to them. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, so because of Christ's superiority, because of his supremacy, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, 
How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Let's pray, church. Now, as we consider your word, I pray that you would help all of us to clearly and concisely answer that question. How will we respond according to your word? You've given clear, consistent, revelatory revelation of yourself. For those of us who believe this and know this and trust it, Help us to grow even deeper in that faith which you've given us according to your word. For anyone who may not, Lord, I pray that your word would be that well-lit path to yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.